Let's hit it. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. We are not the government. The government is not us. This is the O Files. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dino Files. Me being the genius that I am, I've totally forgotten which episode this is. Wouldn't you know it. I'm about to figure it out. 36! <laughs> Episode 36. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm very glad you're here. Because I've got quite a rundown planned. I know I'm about a week late on the show. I know, I know. I actually had a really hard time with uh, this week's article. So, last week's article has become this week's article and nothing happened last week. <laughs> there was a lot of reading and a lot of work to do. I had to read more, more of Simone de Beauvoir than I expected to. It caused me ha to have to do quite a bit of work. But I love it. I love doing this. Hello, listener in the chat. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Listener is the default name, so they just went with the default name. That's fine. Feel free to chime in whenever you feel like I have the chat open the entire time. Oh, let's get into this. The first thing I'm going to talk about today, interesting legislation. This is actually a follow-up on a previous uh, bit of interesting legislation that I covered uh, that after it passed the House and Senate, Donald Trump... Signed into law, SESTA. This is the uh, the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. It's actually a mashup between two acts, SESTA and FOSTA. FOSTA was the House version, and SESTA was the Senate version, and so they got mashed together into SESTA. Uh, they called the final product SESTA. And this has been signed. Now, the source that I'm using for this is Motherboard. Not my favorite source in the world, but their rundown on this is actually not bad. From uh, Samantha Cole on Motherboard, uh, April 11th. The bill, a mashup of the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, FOSTA, and the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, SESTA, which is commonly referred to as the latter, passed Congress in March and makes websites liable for what users say and do on their platforms, and many advocacy groups have come out against the bill, saying that it undermines essential internet freedoms. I talked about this uh, when I talked about this bill, actually, and when I talked about the philosophical underpinnings of the Bill of Rights, I believe on last week's episode, I approached this bill uh, in the article that I wrote to accompany that, that show. It could be months or as late as January 2019 before FOSTA is enacted and anyone could be charged under the law. But even in the days immediately after the bill passed in, Congress platforms started scrambling to proactively shut down forums or whole sites where sex trafficking could feasibly happen. 
Fringe dating websites, sex trade and advertising forums, and even portions of Craigslist were taken down in the weeks following, while companies like Google started strictly enforcing terms of service around sexual speech. One of the websites key to the Fosta debate was Backpage, a site where users posted advertisements frequently for sexual services. Federal authorities seized Backpage on Monday, two days before Trump even signed it, demonstrating that the FBI never really needed Fosta's backing to indict the site to begin with. Except for that there was no sex trafficking brought against them. It was counts of things like racketeering and money laundering. Um, there wasn't any sexual or sexually related crimes whatsoever that the uh, people who ran Backpage were charged with. So this wasn't actually, or they didn't actually need it. That's true. Um, because they didn't charge them with anything even related. Lola, a community organizer with Survivors Against Sesta, told me in a signal message that this is literally a life or death law for sex workers. Quote, I know so many people who were able to start working indoors or leave their exploitative situations because of Backpage and Craigslist, she said. They were able to screen for clients and keep themselves safe and save up money to leave the people exploiting them. And now those sites are down. People are going back to pimps. Pimps are texting providers every day saying the game's changed. You need me. This is a big problem. Uh, not only for free expression, like I, like I mentioned in the article that I wrote and in the previous podcast, but it's also a big problem for sex workers. They... Uh, being able to be relatively public on the internet allowed them a kind of safety net and it allowed them to talk to one another and it was easier than ever to get bad client lists, bad date lists, things like that for these sex workers that those are things that keep them safe. And now that is much, much harder to do. Um, I will probably somewhere try to maybe on my Twitter, try to link to a tweet thread that was done that explained the new infrastructure that, uh, sex workers can set up to try and replace what's being lost uh, as a product of this bill moving forward. We're going to talk about an interesting article. I like to talk about an interesting article that uh, that I've read recently, and this one is Quillet. Again, I love Quillet. Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E dot com. Um, a Life of Pretending, Being Egyptian and Atheist, uh, published on April 17th. This is a long read. This is uh, there's this is a very long article, but it is fascinating. It is a fascinating look into the life of someone who is an atheist and also living in what is effectively a theocracy, if not governmentally, then socially. It is amazing. It, I, it, it's very it's really eye opening for people who, especially in the United States, I know I know friends who have lost family members because of their non-belief, and uh, I feel bad for them. But at least they aren't, you know, punished by their country for <laughs> for uh, their non-belief. Not in the same way, in the very least. Uh, moving on to the next news news topic. This is from the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. I like to take something from them every week. This was uh, written by Samantha Harris on April 12th. Stop debating. CUNY law students disrupt speaker and is critic. Uh, yes, listener, this is Dinophiles. Um, in a stunning display of closed-mindedness and anti-intellectualism, a group of protesters at the City University in New York School of Law not only disrupted a speech by a law professor and author Josh Blackman, but also disrupted a fellow student who was there, in his own words, to ask Blackman some really hard questions. Blackman was invited to speak by CUNY Law Chapter uh, of the Federalist Society on March 29th. Federalist Society speeches and debates take place regularly at law schools around the country. 
I have participated, and he's saying I have, you know, the writer, have participated in a number of them myself. Blackman suggested the topic of free speech on campus, a talk he had given before, quote, had given before without any problems at Southern Illinois, Texas Southern University, and the University of Massachusetts, Barry University, the University of Oregon, and my home institution, the South Texas College of Law, Houston. At CUNY Law, however, there were problems. Blackman provides a complete account of the incident, including video on his blog, uh, and what happened that night should be deeply disheartening to anyone who believes in the right to free speech and the importance of intellectual engagement, engagement and debate. Um, blah, blah, and that blog is joshblackman.com. And you'll be able to find all that there. Several days before the event, the president of CUNY Law's Federalist Society chapter informed Blackman that the students were angry about his planned appearance on campus. So he was basically uh, shouted down, and he uh, there were people who showed up to protest his speech, and... Uh, one, again, the student was there who, who was a critic, who was there, he said, to ask hard questions to see if he could get responses to his concerns. He was also shouted down, which is a major problem when you start shouting down free expression, when you want to talk about deplatforming people and things like that. You're not just silencing them, you're also silencing the critiques that would be brought against them. This is the biggest reason that I'm against deplatforming uh, scum like Nazis and, and communists and things like that is because um, you you have to be able to criticize these people publicly in order to explain why they're wrong or misguided or misled or whatever they may be. And the people who are really convicted, the Nazis who are really convicted in their Nazism, white nationalists and people like that, who are really, really convicted in those beliefs, uh... You're not going to change their mind, but people are watching. People are always watching, especially online. And if you can argue with those people, uh, and, and you can do so effectively, then you may not change their mind. You probably won't, but the people who are watching will not fall for those tricks, for those traps that people tend to set up. Um, this, this really bothers me. I recommend you go read the rest of this. This is on uh, thefire.org. Um, I, I like FIRE as an organization. Uh, they, they, they do a lot to protect free expression on campus. Uh, and having come from a very liberal college myself, uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan <laughs> of the work that they do. Now, we're about to jump into the big rundown that I have planned for today. And before I do that, I want to read an article that was posted 17 hours ago. Right now, it is uh, it's 12.30 a.m., so this is actually posted more like 18 hours ago. It's 12.30 a.m. on the 17th. I have to wake up in three hours, be back soon. All right. Um, I'll be glad to see you when you, get my, when you come back. Uh, yeah, the, I want to I wanna get one thing out of the way. This, again, about 18 hours ago, posted on aljazeera.com. OPCW inspectors not yet allowed in Syria's Duma, UK delegation. British delegation calls on Russia and Syria to allow access as Russian deputy FM says delay is due to U.S.-led attacks. Chemical weapons inspectors have not yet been allowed access to Syria's Duma, UK officials said, as the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical we Weapons, OPCW, met to discuss the alleged use of chemical weapons in Syria. Russia and Syria have not yet allowed access to Duma, the British delegation tweeted on Sunday, adding that unfettered access is essential and Russia and Syria must cooperate. Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei uh, Rabkov immediately denied the allegations that inspectors were not being allowed access, according to Russian news agency I RIA. He said the arrival of the inspectors were delayed as a result of the U.S.-led air raids on Saturday, which would not surprise me a bit. Would not surprise me a bit. Um, 
So with that little bit of background on what the OPCW is, I'm going to jump into the rundown that I have put together for today. The first thing that I want to play comes from March 17th, RT, um, on March 17th. And I'm going to play this bit. Remember, this is about a month, not not about a month, just under a month uh, before the actual attack supposedly took place. And uh, let's just hear what RT reported on that day. Representatives of the Russian armed forces have said they have information, reason to believe that the United States, that its Al-Tanf base in Syria has been preparing squads of rebels, fighters, to stage a chemical provocation, a chemical weapons attack in the south of Syria, in Darab, which borders Jordan and Israel. They've been uh, provided, allegedly, Uh, as many as 20 tons of chlorine, as well as detonators disguised as as cigarette packs. And uh, this attack is imminent. Defense officials have said that this attack will be blamed on the Syrian government and will be used as an excuse by the United States and its allies to strike at Bashar al-Assad, his government and his military directly. Now, um... That was reported on RT long before the actual attack took place, um, which I and I believe it did take place. I I really do think it took place. Um, I just don't think that the that it's that it was Assad. I really don't. Um, some people think it was the United States. Some people think it was Saudi Arabia. Some people think it was the rebels. Um, I don't know. Uh, I know the United States and Saudi Arabia had a hand in it, and I'm going to explain how I know that as we continue through this. Now, uh, I want to say before we get too deep into this, this report. All of these clips and things were originally sourced by uh, the No Agenda Show and their producers. So I want to go ahead and give them due credit for doing a lot of the legwork. And I'm just here condensing basically what uh, the conclusions that they came to, but not only the conclusions they came to, but also kind of the story as it stands. So Heather Nauert is the spokesperson for, I believe, the State Department. Yes, She is the spokesperson for the State Department, and she was talking about what was going on uh, right before the United States launched uh, missile attacks on Syria uh, just recently. And this is what she had to say. We believe we know who is responsible for this. We believe uh, we know that chemical weapon was used. Uh, We will still wait for the OPCW, not wait, the OPCW will still formulate its facts and its findings, but that still does not determine, the OPCW does still not determine the the responsibility. They just determine the substance. So she is saying that they're not going to wait for the OPCW because the OPCW does not determine responsibility. The thing that the OPCW will do is determine whether or not chemical attacks actually happened, um, which is a question that does exist. And I will explain why this question exists, exists next. Peter Ford is the former UK ambassador to Syria. That means he, he was the ambassador from the UK to Syria. And he had this to say on BBC Scotland. And if you'll listen, um, this uh, the consummate host on the show that he's taking part in is not 
too fond of letting the man talk, but let's just hear what he has to Indeed, say. Indeed, it's not just the pre- the U.S. president, though, who's appalled by what they've seen in terms of these pictures <clears throat> coming from Duma. We've had condemnation from President Macron, likewise from uh, Prime Minister Theresa May, too. If it isn't the sort of military action that you've just outlined there, what should be the response to this use of chemical weapons if it's proved? Uh, The correct response is obviously, and I think a child could see this, to get inspectors uh, onto the alleged site of the alleged offences. And if it's proved, then what? Because, of course, we we know that Assad has form on this. We've had investigations previously, and there has been fairly conclusive proof that chemical agents have been used. Uh, I don't think uh, that Assad is in the least worried that the inspectors would find out his guilt, because he's probably not guilty, at least on this occasion. I mean, we have to engage our brains as well as our emotions here, not be stampeded by those videos which are described as being unverified, but which, by dint of being repeated over and over and over again, come to acquire a spurious credibility. We have to ask ourselves, what what are the sources of the information on which we're in this stampede to war? They're twofold. And I'm sorry, but the media are falling down on the job in in investigating this. The sources are the Syrian-American Medical Society, which is a pro-Islamist propaganda outfit based in the United States. So you're saying these, these the pictures have been, are you saying these pictures have been staged? Are you saying that people haven't died? Yes. That people haven't been yes. affected? Yes. Now, the, <clears throat> the problem here <clears throat> is that our boy, our consummate host, talks over, I think, what is the most important part of what Peter Ford has to say. So I went ahead and pulled that. And let's listen to what Peter Ford's saying while our boy at BBC Scotland talks over in the United States. So you're saying these, these the pictures CIA. have been? Are you saying these? I'm going to play it in again. The United States. So you're saying these, these the pictures CIA. have been? Are you saying these? Uh, Peter Ford is saying funded by the CIA. One more in time. In the United States. So you're saying these, these the pictures CIA. have been? Are you saying these? All right. Now let's uh, let's allow Peter Ford to the sources are the Syrian American Medical Society which is a pro-Islamist propaganda outfit based in the United States. So you're saying these, these, the pictures, by the CIA. these pictures have been staged? Are you saying that people haven't died, yes. that people haven't been yes. affected? Yes, in all probability, the incidents have been staged. Come on, we know how easy it is to fake images for the, the Internet. Um, look at the, the images. A- anybody could stage those. And then the second uh, source is supposed to be uh, so-called first responders. Who are the first responders? In this case, they are the White Helmets, which is another pro-Islamist jihadi uh, propaganda outfit who on this the ground... This is an awful lot of effort involved. to discredit Assad, finish. though, Please isn't let it? Me finish. Please let me finish this important point. I would like um, all of you, if, if you if you can at some point, go read up on the White Helmets a little bit. They are They are a very spurious organization. They, um, I, I'm not sure about Peter Ford's claims that they are jihadists. Uh, they may be, um, but they are spurious in the very least. They have taken funding, I believe, from USAID, which is linked to the CIA as well uh, as this other source that Peter Ford mentioned. And uh, he continues. The witnesses to these terrible events are people who themselves were involved in beheadings, literally picking up the body parts, and we choose 
to give credence to testimony from these alleged first responders. But Assad's sorry, reputation but is already in, in Assad's reputation is already very difficult. I'm trying to ask you a question to prove point. the point you of what you're making. Allow, you don't allow, the BBC does not allow questions of important detail to be addressed. We have a short period of time. I'm trying to prove what you're saying. The, the point is that surely that Assad's reputation is already dented. What would be in the interests of these people to stage these events? Is that not obvious? A child can see that the intention was to produce the hysteria and now the military action that we are on the point of taking, risking our own safety. What the jihadis have done is jerk our leash. And frankly, for one, I think it's pretty disgusting that we are allowing ourselves to have our own leash jerked by these Islamist fanatics. This is, this is what's going on. And ask yourself, how, does it, how has it profited Assad? Please engage your brain. Answer the question. How has Assad benefited from all this uh, 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 mayhem? In fact, it's rebounded against him. Why would he do such a thing when he was already winning? The, the battle for Eastern Ghouta was virtually over. Why would he choose this moment to do the one thing that was guaranteed to pluck defeat for him from the jaws of victory? Please. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. That's Peter Ford. He's a former British ambassador to Syria. The time is 17 minutes to eight. So uh, what Peter Ford is saying there is that this whole thing is fake. Now, that's a, that is a line that has been taken. That was a line that was taken uh, the last time this happened, uh, when Donald Trump decided to bomb Syria before, after he saw the poor little children on the television. Uh, and I, I don't... I am very resistant to false flag theory. I, I don't like it. And the reason I don't like it is that if people died, and I'm saying they didn't, I'm an asshole, Right. So I, I, I don't want to claim things are false flags. I, I do, however, question where things came from and why things happen. And the, the primary question that I have here is, uh, if Assad didn't do it, which I don't believe he did, and I don't think there has ever been evidence that he did, especially the last time that this was said to have happened, and, 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 and the time before that with uh, Barack Obama, I, I don't believe that Assad has actually used chemical weapons against his own people. I don't think it's happened. Um, but that's the, uh, that's the question that I have is why, how, how did this come about? And I believe that our next pair of clips will have the answer. This is another relatively long clip, but it is Jeffrey Sachs on The Morning Joe. Jeffrey Sachs, I believe, is from Columbia University. Let's hear what he has out, to say. Out of control, this could uh, escalate. It's true. But I think we have to step back and not put this uh, in partisan terms. This is a U.S. mistake that started seven years ago. And I remember the day on, uh, on your show mm -hmm. uh, when uh, President Obama said, Assad must go. Mm -hmm. And I looked at uh, you and Joe and I said, huh, how's he going to do that? Where's the policy for that? Right. And we know uh, they sent in the CIA to overthrow Assad, the CIA and Saudi Arabia together uh, in covert operations tried to overthrow Assad. It was a disaster. Eventually it brought in both ISIS as a splinter group to the jihadists that went in. 
It also brought in Russia. So we have been digging deeper and deeper and deeper. What we should do now is get out. I do want to point out that Jeffrey Sachs here, when he talks about Saudi Arabia being involved, we cannot forget that the Saudi Arabian government, the Saudi Arabian theocracy is, uh, is a Wahhabist one. Uh, these people are uh, radicals. These people are, uh, they do fund terrorists. They did fund and, uh, and, and help the 9-11 terrorists. These people are not good people, and our CIA was in bed with them. This does, this does support Peter Ford's uh, idea that this is the jihadists yanking the, the leash of the West, if you want to say the West. Uh, let's continue with Jeffrey Sachs. And not continue to throw missiles, not have a confrontation with Russia. Seven years has been a disaster under Obama, continuing under Trump. This is what I would call the permanent state. This is uh, the CIA. This is the uh, Pentagon wanting to keep Iran and Russia out of Syria, but no way to do that. And so we have made a proxy war in Syria. It's killed 500,000 people, displaced 10 million. And I'll say predictably so, because I predicted it seven years ago that there was no way to do this and that it would make a complete chaos. So what I would plead to President Trump is get out, like his instinct told him, He's by the way. Before, yeah. That was his instinct. Right. But then all the establishment, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Pentagon, everybody said, no, no, that's irresponsible. But his instinct is right. Get out. We've done enough damage, seven years. And now we really risk a confrontation with Russia. Yeah, so I want to play the two most important bits that I think came out of that Peter Ford and Jeffrey Sachs. I, that out of those two uh, interviews, I think the most important bits are the following. In the United States. So you're saying these, these the pictures have been, are you saying these Funded by the CIA and... Right. And we know uh, they sent in the CIA to overthrow Assad, the CIA and Saudi Arabia. They sent in the CIA and Saudi Arabia. What he is referring to is an operation you can look up yourself. And this is called Operation Timber Sycamore. And I'm just going to read from the wiki page here. Operation Timber Sycamore was a classified weapons supply and training program run by the United States Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, and supported by various Arab intelligence services, most notably that of Saudi Arabia, our Wahhabist friends. Launched in 2012 or 2013, we don't even really know, it supplied money, weaponry, and training to rebel forces fighting Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in the Syrian Civil War. According to U.S. officials, the program has trained thousands of rebels. President Barack Obama secretly authorized the CIA to begin arming Syria's embattled rebels in 2013. However, the CIA had been facilitating the flow of arms from Libya to Syria for more than a year beforehand in collaboration with the U.K., United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Cutter, however you want to pronounce it. The program's existence was suspected after the U.S. Federal Business Opportunities website publicly solicited contract bids to ship tons of weaponry from Eastern Europe to Tsuku, uh, Turkey, and Aqaba, Jordan. One unintended consequence of the program has been to flood the Middle East black, black market with weapons, including assault rifles, mortars, and rocket-propelled grenades. The U.S. delivered weapons via Rammstein, supposedly in breach of German laws. In July 2017, U.S. officials stated that Timber Sycamore would be phased out, with funds possibly re redirected to fighting the Islamic State of Iraq and the, and the Levant, ISIL, or ISIS, whatever you want to call it, or to offering rebel forces defensive capabilities. 
this was a massive plan. This was enacted uh, by, I believe, Hillary Clinton, uh, Barack Obama, and the CIA at the time. And this is what armed not only the rebels in Syria, but also, as Jeffrey Sachs said, this armed ISIL, this armed other jihadist groups in the region. This is a major fucking problem, and you'd think we would have learned by now about this after uh, Ronald Reagan's whole fiasco with this came back in 9-11 to send the ass. But apparently, we are slow fucking learners. This is uh, incredibly bothersome. <laughs> but, all of this in place, I do want to point out that these are the reasons why I do not believe Assad actually... Uh, committed the atrocities he's accused of having committed. I'm not a fan of Bashar al-Assad. I don't like him. He's a dictator, and he's an Islamist, and I'm not a fan. However, I do not think that the United States going into the Middle East for another round of regime change is a good idea, especially when they've already tried and failed. This happened with Gaddafi, if you if you would uh, remember that as well, back in the, back in the uh, I believe it was the Reagan administration, uh, Gaddafi was brought in, to the fold as a as a United States government puppet, and then not long after he was found dead in a ditch, and Hillary Clinton's laughing about it on national television. So I am uh, I, I don't believe that everything's on the up and up. I I actually don't think that uh, Assad had anything to do with the chemical weapons. I think given all of this evidence and the lack of evidence toward Bashar al-Assad's regime's guilt, I think that. This was uh, done by uh, rebels or the Saudis. Um, I think the chemical weapons were given to the rebels by either the United States or the Saudis or uh, another region that is friendly, like uh, like Iraq, perhaps. Um, and I, I don't believe that what we're being told is the truth. Everything is sneaky up around Sneakyville. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. That's, that pretty much sums up exactly what I wanted to say about that. Now, uh, moving on to... That actually, I think, qualifies as a main topic. But I did write an article for this episode. It has nothing to do with Syria. This actually has to do with some things that I saw on Twitter that set me the fuck off. And when I see things that set me off, I immediately want to write about them. And so... This required a little bit more research than usual. I had to read a little bit more than I usually would uh, in order to get this written up, but I did, and I'm excited to share it with you. So this is, this is I'm going to be reading partially from the article that's going to be posted on the Rogue File in conjunction with this episode posted on Alternative Internet Radio, and, well, it has to do with objectification. And what objectification actually is. We're switching gears. Uh, it has to do with neo-feminism. And again, I've, I've, I've talked about this before, but what needs to be done to heal America's, uh, not America's, our, just our society in general, uh, our broken sexuality. I wrote an article about this not long ago. I've also written an article where I touched on ideas from Simone de Beauvoir when I talked about the ethics of anarchy uh, in another article on the Rogue File. But uh, I'm just going to start reading from here and then uh, break in with other things if I feel like it. Simone de Beauvoir is widely recognized as the single most influential philosopher in the history of feminist thought and one of the greatest figures in all of existentialism. Her views, though, have been read in an increasingly selective way as time and feminism have moved on, and this has resulted in misunderstandings of the ideas that Beauvoir developed. 
not the least of which is the concept of the subject-object relationship, including the resulting notion of objectification. If you didn't know this, Simone de Beauvoir pretty much established what objectification is. It's become a buzz phrase now, but Simone de Beauvoir had a very specific and very real definition for what constitutes objectification. And she talks about it in not only A Second Sex, which is her kind of feminist manifesto and a, and a wonderful, wonderful read, but also uh, in The Ethics of Ambiguity, which I think is, uh, is my favorite work of hers. In The Second Sex, Beauvoir makes statements that would not be well received by some feminists today. She recognizes and legitimizes the differences between men and women, while maintaining that those differences should not be a basis for the cultural or social subordination of women. In modern neo-feminist thought, for these purposes, the word I'll use to describe the people addressed here will be neo-feminist. In modern neo-feminist thought, such a view is near blasphemous. Simply to mention the fact that there are differences between men and women deserves derision, as a statement of difference implies an admittance of resulting differences in aptitudes. Regardless of what those aptitudes are, or how little they actually matter, such a statement is absolutely unacceptable. Bavar also revolutionized the idea that gender expectations for women are socially enforced, and that Quote, one is not born a woman, but becomes a woman. That, ex expe that expectations of womanhood are applied to women tied inexorably to the biological realities of female adulthood. The legitimacy of this cultural critique, as well as the previous one, cannot be overstated. Simone de Beauvoir's work is full of equally relevant and important observations and insights, including her breakdown of otherization and its effects and her understanding and definition of ambiguity, simply the state of being both a subject and an object in the world. What logically follows from that is the definition Beauvoir puts forth for what constitutes objectification, the removal of a person's subjectivity. Subjectivity and objectivity are conditions of being human. Beauvoir is clear that the ambiguity she refers to is that of being subject and object concurrently, the two pushing and pulling against one another. Objectification then logically follows as the active removal of the subjectivity of a person. They are seen and treated as beings incapable of making decisions, thinking for themselves, or even existing through any means other than that of the objectifier. This constitutes a removal of the, intellect of the internal life of the objectified and their capacity to have an effect on the world around them. Beauvoir and other feminists are right to observe that this very thing has been done to women throughout history, and many modern thinkers are right to point out that it still happens today. The problem, though, is that the feminist cause of female liberation has been subverted by the neo-feminist cause of female dominance and general misandry. In this context, objectification has taken on a whole new meaning. And uh, this ties into the idea of the male gaze. It's a concept which accurately posits that images of, of attractive or sexy women in advertisements on billboards and in popular media are designed to appeal to what mainstream operators think is the male ideal of attractiveness. In practice, there are a number of fatal disconnects between men, the idea of what men want, and the images that are portrayed. In short, not all males think the same things are attractive. However, this does not necessarily undercut the accuracy of the theory. Because of this, the neo-feminist line du jour has been to dismiss such things out of, as out-and-out out objectification and sexism. Everything from porn to beer ads serves to further train men to see women as nothing more than slabs of meat, never mind images like... Chris Hemsworth and Thor. Neo-feminist thought posits that not only are the women in the works victims of the patriarchy, but such works further victimize all women everywhere. This view, while legitimate on the surface, contains one fatal logical oversight, the subject of the image. 
You probably already see where this is going. I am claiming that the sex negativity of neo-feminism is simply another form of objectification. The thing that neo-feminists overlook with regard to everything from porn to beer ads is the simple fact that the person in the image chose to be there. No one held a gun to her head, no one threatened her family. She may well have chosen to sack groceries at Walmart, but she chose instead to look sexy and have sex in front of a camera for money. She has commoditized her looks in a bid to monetize what she and her employees see as male desire, and she has done so successfully, or she wouldn't be on the poster or in the po porno for neo-feminists to complain about. The problem that neo-feminists have with this line of work, as well as with the sex trade generally, is that they see the body of women involved as the commodity. At the very least, this view is backward and puritanical. Logically, all labor is commoditized. There is very little difference between the laborer and the prostitute outside of the job itself. The body is always a commodity in a situation where a person is selling their labor, or all forms of employment ever. The neo-feminist forgets that the body is property, owned solely by the person who inhabits it. That what they choose to do with it is their decision, and no one else's. Thus, when a neo-feminist looks at a poster, a porno, or anything else and chooses to see a victim, I submit that they have engaged in that most heinous of sins. They have objectified the woman in the image. They have removed her decision-making, her personhood, from the equation. They have stripped her of her subjectivity. They have delegitimized her, and they have disregarded her ownership of her body. They have done everything, they have done the very thing that Simone de Beauvoir described, and thus made it clear that what they see is not a person, but a slave, and they wish to further enslave her to their own puritanical ends. I've said before that a rejection of puritanism is the only way for society to heal its wounded sexuality. If the puritans and neo-feminists alike are allowed to dictate the terms of propriety for human sexuality, we will find ourselves in a darker place than where we began. Indeed, it is this kind of puritanism that has led to many of the problems we have today. And I talk about this on the What Me Too Says About Our Broken Sexuality episode of the show, and also on the Rogue File. Such restrictive philosophies used to be the product of male-dominated societies which placed their own conception of the purity of femininity above the wills and desires of the women themselves. I am sad to report the neo-feminists have picked up where the male chauvinists left off, so let's give their ideas the attention they deserve. That is to say, none at all. And as hypocritical as it may be for me to write uh, 1,100 words about <laughs> these people's idiocy and then say to ignore their idiocy... I, uh, I think it's important. I think it's important that we don't let the sex negativity of neo-feminism and misandry and uh, the idea of female domination take over what was originally an idea of female liberation, a much-needed idea of female liberation. I'm not a traditionalist, um, and I have many traditionalist friends who I'm sure I'm making very unhappy with these <laughs> observations, but... You know, I, I really don't think that, um, that women should be forced to do one thing or another based simply on the advice or demands of, of male expectation. I do, however, think that if women want to use male expectation to make fucking money, they can do that and should do that. They, if they want to, it's absolutely their right. And this is one of the issues that we see in neo-feminism. One of the many hypocrisies that we see is, uh, I, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a neo-feminist who would disagree with the phrase, my body, my choice. But then as soon as you apply the notion of self-ownership that my body, my choice is based upon to any other uh, thing which they may disagree with, like sex work, like prostitution, like posing in a skimpy outfit for a beer ad, 
They suddenly see the woman involved as a victim and not someone who has simply taken ownership of their body and who are expressing themselves or maybe not even expressing themselves, just making some fucking money. And I believe part of the reason, I'm not, I didn't mention this in the article and I won't mention it in the article because I think it would take another 500 words to explain fully, but uh, I believe part of the reason that these neo-feminists hate sex work, that they hate uh, pornography, that they hate uh, attractive women in advertising is because men get something out of it. I think that is the primary reason that they cannot stand this kind of thing. I think it's because men get something out of it. I think it agitates them and aggravates them that men actually get something out of women uh, choosing to look sexy, especially for money, or to be sexy or have sex for money. I think the fact that men get something out of that is is endlessly aggravating to neo-feminists because they are misandrists. They are not, uh, they do not want equality of the sexes. They want uh, subjugation of men, which as a political goal, I mean, fine, pursue that if you like, but don't wrap it in the garb of equality. This is one of the reasons that I love Simone de Beauvoir so much is that she was honest with herself and with her readers about the relationship between men and women. In fact, in the second sex, she talks about how sex is the, the one place, really, in society where women, and this is society according to Beauvoir and, and also historically, I think, accurate, this, that sex is the one place where women are allowed to actually live their ambiguity, that they are allowed to be both subject and object. They are the object of the desire of their partner, but they are also the subject in that uh, women have a certain amount of control over sex. When sex is consensual and sex is healthy, women have control over the situation uh, insofar as, you know, they, they want to, really, uh, just as men would in the same situation, just as men do in the same situation. So it's, it's very important to recognize these things, and Simone de Beauvoir did recognize them, and neo-feminists refuse to accept them. And I think this is incredibly damaging. Uh, and so I say that they should be ignored. These sex-negative feminists who, who claim that they have the best interests of, of women generally at heart, really, they're just prudes. And they are, uh, they are Puritans, and they should be ignored as all prudes and Puritans should be ignored. That is going to be posted on the Rogue File today. It is the, uh, it's early morning on the 17th, so I'm going to... Uh, get these things posted up, and uh, I guess in order to do that, I have to say goodbye. So thank you all so much for listening, and I want you all to have a wonderful, wonderful week, and uh, I will see you um, hopefully next week, unless anything gets in the way, probably Sunday, Saturday or Sunday. Remember, everybody, you can follow me on Twitter at DinoFiles, no spaces, no dashes. You can follow the network on Twitter at AltNetRadio. The show and other shows can be found on AIRAD.io, Alternative Internet Radio. You can find the uh, posts that go up in conjunction with these episodes on the Rogue File, roguefile.com. You can also donate from there or from Alternative Internet Radio. You can also buy merch if you want something for your money. We have merch. Thank you to those uh, who are in the live chat. Thank you very much to all of you. Thank you for those who download to listen. Thank you to those who rate and review on iTunes or whatever platform. They're all wonderful people. 
And uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And I will see you all next week. Y'all have a great week. This show is part of the Alternative Internet Radio Podcast Network. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io.